biology. 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 Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today we are going to go through a couple of dot points, and the first one is one that I probably should have done on last week's episode, and that is evaluate using examples the benefits of engaging in an epidemiological study. All right, let's talk about some benefits in general of epidemiological studies. Uh, they help us to understand the cause of disease. They help us to understand risk factors associated with disease. They allow us to develop effective treatments for diseases. They add to the scientific literature, improving the quality of all data for future research. They positively influence individuals to make changes to improve their quality of life, and they impact on society and the economy. So those are some general benefits to most epidemiological studies, but we want to apply that to a few examples and see how it looks. So the first example we're going to go through is the lung cancer study that we did go through in a previous episode, and that was the study on 40,000 doctors in the UK. Now the study showed that individuals who smoked are more likely to get lung cancer, and also showed that the more cigarettes you smoked, the greater your chance of getting lung cancer. So how does this link with our benefits? Well, if we look at understanding the cause of disease, yes, it certainly allowed us to understand that smoking may be the cause of lung cancer. Did it help us to understand risk factors associated with the disease? Yes, there are more risks in smoking more cigarettes. So another good example there. Does it help us to develop effective treatments for the disease? It would. Knowing that lung cancer is caused by smoking would allow scientists to understand how the damage is occurring, and then the correct treatment to overcome that. Does it add to the scientific literature, improving the quality of all data for future research? Yes, it certainly does. It is the basis for a lot of the research on smoking and lung cancer, and so it certainly sparked a lot more future research to be done. Does it positively influence individuals to make changes to improve their quality of life? Most certainly, if you know that by smoking more cigarettes you're going to increase your chance of lung cancer, you may choose to smoke less or not at all. This would potentially decrease the risk of lung cancer and therefore improve your quality of life and it might minimize pain and suffering. And does it impact on society and the economy? Yes, it certainly would. This research would allow people to make better choices, which would potentially lead to less hospitalizations and less money being spent on treatment options. It also might minimize the pain and suffering for individuals and their families. All right, so the dot point does say to use examples. So we're now going to take a look at a second study, and that is one on type 2 diabetes. Now, this can be found in the Nelson book if you have access to it. And the type 2 diabetes study was on a Pima population. Now, the Pima population were people that lived in Arizona, I believe, and they were analyzed for their physical activity over a long period of time. They studied over a thousand individuals, they uh, had a very valid epidemiological study, and they came to certain conclusions about physical activity. Now, what would be the benefits of engaging in those? Does it help us to understand the cause of disease? Yes, so this study was linking physical activity with type 2 diabetes, and it showed that as you decrease your levels of physical activity, you increase your likelihood of getting type 2 diabetes in this population. 
Did it help us to understand risk factors associated with the disease? They did take into account many things in this study. Uh, they analysed lots of different aspects. So there may have been other risk factors that were identified as leading to type 2 diabetes, such as diet-related things. Did it help to develop effective treatments for the disease? It may not have helped directly develop treatments for the disease, but again, it certainly is adding to the literature, which was the next dot point. Does it add to the scientific literature? Yes, it does improve the quality of all data, further solidifying the fact that physical activity is directly related to type 2 diabetes. Does it positively influence individuals to make changes to improve their quality of life? Most certainly. So this is a great one that you can apply. This is directly about getting people to change their behavior. And so if they understand that they are more likely to get type 2 diabetes, they are potentially able to change their behavior to improve their life. And then furthermore, does it impact on society and the economy? Yes, once again, in terms of society, they are able to work for longer, they are less affected by the disease, there's less pain and suffering, and there is less use of uh, hospitals and resources so the economy can benefit as less money is being spent on the condition. So that's another nice example where it's pretty simple for you guys to understand that the lack of physical activity could potentially lead to type 2 diabetes. Alright, so moving on to the next inquiry question, we have how can non-infectious diseases be prevented? And the dot point, use secondary sources to evaluate the effectiveness of current disease prevention methods and develop strategies for the prevention of a non-infectious disease, including but not limited to educational programs and campaigns and genetic engineering. So we're going to start off with the educational programs and campaigns. And the first one we're going to look at is the QUIT campaign. And this links very well with what we've already been talking about today, and that is the ideas around smoking and lung cancer. So the QUIT campaign was aimed at people who were smoking to try and get them to stop. And this is a very, uh, I guess, elaborate campaign that went over many years and is still going. And you guys would already know a few things that happen um, to cigarettes or have happened to cigarettes in order to change people's behavior. So I'm going to give you a little overview of what happened um, this can be found in the Nelson book as well if you have access to it. They have a couple really nice graphs and an overview in a timeline form of everything that happened. So I'm just going to give you the, the brief version of that. So some things that the campaign did to try and stop people from smoking. In 1990, the commencement of the Tobacco Advertising Prohibition Act came in. And then in 1994, commencement of bans on smoking in restaurants. Around 97, we had the commencement of the first national tobacco campaign. In 1998, we had the commencement of bans on point-of-sale tobacco advertising. In 2006, there were graphic health warnings applied to packaging on most tobacco products. In 2010, there was a 25% tobacco excise increase. So basically, 25% added to the cost of all cigarettes. In 2012... They commenced their plain packaging and updated those expanded health warnings. So the packaging really became, you know, a deterrent for people. They didn't want to have it. It wasn't a social symbol, which is what it had been used for before. And then in 2013, up until now, we have the annual staged 12.5% tobacco excise increase. So it's going up at 12.5% each year, which is a considerable amount. So I think it's important that you take maybe three examples from what I've just said to use in a potential exam answer. I think the easiest things for you to use would be the plain packaging laws. These are things that have been legislated to be in law. So companies have to put plain packaging on their cigarettes. And this stops people from using them as a social symbol. 
The second one would be the health warnings that are also on the packaging. And this indicates to people the potential impact of the cigarettes on their body. So that gives them a direct link to understanding how they could be affecting themselves. And the third one would be the price increase. So this automatic 12.5% price increase each year is a significant deterrent and it really inhibits the ability of people to actually buy the cigarettes. So it stops you from being able to buy so many and then eventually when it becomes out of your price range, you'll need to stop buying them altogether. So there are three good examples there. Now the dot point is actually asking us to evaluate the effectiveness of this program. So was the quit campaign effective? So we can look at a few key points to show that it was. The first one being since the 1990s when the program was introduced, smoking rates have decreased from 24% to 13%. So that's a nice fact that hopefully you can remember, 24% to 13%. So a significant decrease in those smoking rates. Now if we look a little further, we'll also see that as smoking has decreased, so too has the incidence and prevalence rates of lung cancer. And this is a very beneficial thing. However, it's mainly in males who always had an overall higher rate of both smoking and lung cancer. So that rate is coming down for males. Unfortunately, and this is part of our evaluation, the female incidence and prevalence rate for lung cancer is actually increasing. Now, this is most likely due to the fact that lung cancer takes a long time to develop. And therefore, there is a delay in the effectiveness of this program. So it wasn't as effective on females as it was for males, at least not yet in terms of its impact on lung cancer. However, when we look at the smoking rates in men and women, they are both going down, which should lead to an overall decrease in those lung cancer rates in both men and women. All right, so a quick recap. Yes, it was effective. It's decreased smoking rates overall in both males and females. Overall, it's actually decreased incidence, prevalence, and mortality rates of lung cancer as well. However, female incidence and prevalence rates of lung cancer have gone up and are expected to plateau and then move back down again. So that's the evaluation of the quit campaign, but it does say educational programs and campaigns. So you might need to have two here just in case. So I'm just going to quickly go through one. I'm not going to go through this in much detail. Uh, but this is just a second example that you might have to give in an exam. And so the one we're going to look at is the Sun Smart program or the Slip Slop Slap Seek Slide program you may have heard of. They're really two parts of the same thing and in each state they are run slightly differently. Now I found it very difficult to find data on the effectiveness of these programs and the best I could do is the effectiveness of the Sun Smart program in Victoria. And the Sun Smart program in Victoria has been very successful. So a quick recap of the history of the SunSmart program. In the 1960s, the Anti-Cancer Council of Victoria identified the risks of overexposure to ultraviolet radiation. So that's really where those epidemiological studies would have come in saying UV rays can cause melanoma. Now in the 1980s, the famous Slip Slop Slap program started, and that was very iconic, found on uh, TV screens and radios all across the country, and that asked people to basically make sure you put on sunscreen, put on a shirt, and put on a hat whenever you go out into the sun, and that was very effective, something that I still remember myself. Now that program in 2008 was expanded to seek and slide. So seek shade. So try and get out of the sun if you can and slide into some sunglasses. And those uh, additional combinations just add that extra layer of protection to minimize the damage of UV rays. Now, the last major component of the SunSmart campaign was actually part of stopping commercial solariums. 
and those were these tanning beds that also had the negative effect of UV radiation on the skin and therefore potentially causing that melanoma, so stopping the commercial use of solariums. Now, we want to know if it was effective, and so we're going to look at the key factors that say yes, it was. So three key facts that would suggest or indicate that this program was effective. The first one, it's estimated to have prevented more than 43,000 skin cancers and 1,400 deaths between 1988 and 2011. The incidence rates for people under 60 are stabilizing and falling, which is consistent with the positive effect of the SunSmart program on behavior change. And then a financial one, SunSmart has been cost-effective with a $2.22 return for every dollar spent in the Victorian program. So it's an economic benefit to the state of Victoria. So that's a brief summary of the effectiveness of the SunSmart campaign. And I'll put a link to that data and information on the Facebook page. So make sure you check that out if you like. Now, the second part of the dot point actually asks you to develop strategies for the prevention of a non-infectious disease. And so it's a good idea to have an educational program or campaign plan that you could use in an exam situation. Now, all programs will include very similar things. So I'm going to give you like a brief overview of some common things that you will find in a program, and then I'll apply it to the example of obesity. So, the first thing you probably want to do in any program is give data about the incidence, prevalence, and mortality rates. You want people to know that, you know, something is going wrong. There is a significant increase or decrease in certain factors. When you're making a program, you want a target group or groups. You want to use a multifaceted approach like a legislation, TV advertising, um, and different preventative measures. You want to potentially make catchy slogans or posters or awareness days. You want to use legislation, something that you might be able to implement in school or a tax potentially, or maybe some mandatory training. So let's go through an example now and use obesity as our example. So an example of a piece of data that you could use for a program would be something like more than one in four people in Australia, around 5 million people, are considered to be obese, and that is BMI over 30 kilograms or more. And so you would then go into detail about the risk factors of being obese, type 2 diabetes, atherosclerosis, and there are many other conditions. So you could get a lot of data about obesity, and that one shouldn't be too difficult to find. Now, who would you target in this situation? What kind of information would you want to hand out? Well, the idea is you're trying to prevent this. And so if you're trying to prevent something, you want to aim it at people that aren't already obese. And that would potentially be children and young adults. Okay, so that's your target market. Then how would you do it? Well, you'd probably use some sort of TV campaign that are on around children's programs potentially, or even a part of the TV shows together. So maybe working with TV companies to maybe add physical activity and healthy eating habits into the program itself. You might also want to have ads when parents are watching at night so that they can warn parents about the health effects on that program. In terms of PDHPE, so things that they can do in school, you might allocate certain resources or funding to allow students to get access to information around food and health choices. You might want to use posters that go directly into schools and are given out free so that teachers and, and principals can put them around. You also might want to make a website where parents can go to have questions that they have answered that is easy to access and simple to use. 
And then in terms of taxes and things you could do, you could tax high sugar foods or those foods that are associated with a poor lifestyle and diet or those that are more likely to lead to obesity. So that's just a very brief example of a program that you could create or design. And again, in the HSC, you're probably going to get something that you know isn't just recall all of this information. It's going to be, you know, here's a, here's a disease, here's all the information, create a program that would fit the needs uh, for the population. And, and so you would go through and use the logic about data of the incidence, prevalence, mortality, target groups, different approaches, legislation, etc. Okay, so I hope that was an easy example to remember and a good one that you can use. All right, now we're going to look at the last part of that dot point, which is how genetic engineering can be used to prevent non-infectious diseases. Now, the first example I'm going to give is one that we've already done, so it makes things very easy, and the second one is going to be a new one. So the first example is golden rice, and you might remember me talking about golden rice already in a previous episode. Now, golden rice is a transgenic species, and that means it's been modified using the genes of other species. In particular, it has two genes, one from maize and one from soil bacterium, and this allows the rice to produce beta-carotene. Now, that beta-carotene, when ingested by a person, allows them to produce vitamin A, and that beta-carotene in the rice is what gives it its unique yellow color. Now, the vitamin A deficiency, which is the condition that we're talking about here, can lead to many additional problems, like blindness and a compromised immune system. Now, that's a significant issue in many third world countries, and so the idea was that golden rice could be distributed where rice is a common food, and therefore they could increase these vitamin A levels just through eating the food they normally would. Now we need to remember the dot point tells us to evaluate the effectiveness of this genetic engineering technique. So is the production of golden rice effective? And the answer is yes and no, as always. So this is a good evaluate question and one that you certainly could use to make a point. So can the beta carotene produced in the golden rice be enough vitamin A for an individual? The answer is yes. The estimate is that only 40 grams consumed daily is enough to prevent death and blindness. There's no possibility of overdosing as the human body only converts beta-carotene it needs to vitamin A and excretes the rest unchanged. Now the problem here is that the golden rice hasn't been distributed globally yet. In fact, the very first country that is going to commercially grow this crop is the Philippines, and that was agreed upon in July of this year. So we don't really have any evidence that when this product is used in a community or a population, that it is effective. So overall, we probably cannot accurately determine whether or not this is good at preventing the disease because it hasn't been tested for a long enough period. So overall, the effectiveness of this transgenic organism is unclear. However, this does have the potential to make a real impact on humans and vitamin A deficiency. Now, the second example I'm going to give you is a bit more clear in terms of its effectiveness, and that is the HPV vaccine. Now, this is a vaccine for a virus, and a virus isn't something we usually consider as a non-infectious disease. But this virus has been linked to causing a few different types of cervical cancer, as well as things like genital warts and other conditions. 
Now, by receiving this vaccine, you actually decrease the chance of getting cervical cancers and genital warts, and it is almost 100% effective. So the latest data, 10 years after the original research was done, was that it still maintains that level of around about 100% effectiveness. So that's certainly a very effective method to manipulate genes in order to stop the process of non-infectious diseases. Now you need to make sure that you consider the negative points as well in an evaluation. And so when I say it's 100% effective, I say it's 100% effective at stopping the HPV virus, but it only prevents around 70% of cervical cancers. The other 30% are caused through different mechanisms. So it's not 100% stopping cervical cancers, but it's got a very high percentage of what it is stopping. It also stops around 90% of genital warts, which is also very effective. So just some things to consider. Now, from the Australian government, they're also uh, continuing to do research on this as it is still relatively new. Uh, and they are suggesting that if there's ever a booster shot that might be needed, that people in Australia will be contacted and there will be an immunization register to keep records of that. So just some things to consider when you are doing your evaluation. But overall, very effective at stopping the virus and preventing those 70% of cervical cancer cases. All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode today, guys. As always, you can go on and check the Facebook page out for any of the resources that I've discussed in this podcast. And make sure you check out STEM Reactor at stemreactor.com.au for anything you need related to biotechnology in schools. And if you'd like to support the show, you can also buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash HSC Biology Pod. See you later.